crime peeps welcome back to another episode and i'm here with lo we are in studio together today what up hwc and we're drinking some wine oh did i cut your rhyme off oh my gosh i'm the worst go for no, it no you didn't cut it off i was just gonna say reporting from white lake today right yep we got our wine lo's checking out my new place she brought me, what is the name of it? It's the apple Oliver. pie. Oliver. Yes, the Oliver apple pie wine. So bomb. You guys have to go try it. It's like legit bite of apple pie in a liquid form. It's so true. Like, you know, if you guys are OG fans, you know how much we rave about the PB&J St. Julian wine. This is like very close in comparison to and I that. think we keep it seasonal. Like, around this time we drink it, but we yeah. don't do it all year because it's like... No, we keep it classy. We keep up with the times, you know? <laughs> keep it classy. <laughs> We're classy bitches. We're classy bitches. We, we change up our wine seasonally, you know? <laughs> That's how professional we are. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to be back with Lo. Um, but we did hang out. Last Friday, Friday the 13th, Horror, Wine, and Crime had a night out. And, you know, because we're a horror podcast, so where else would we be on October 13th on a Friday? A Taylor Swift MJR concert. I mean, I know you guys weren't expecting us to say that. (laughs) In our defense, it was to take my daughter out and her friend and her boyfriend, which I gotta say, props to him for agreeing to go with her. He Most probably men do not boys he, do not right. really do that. He probably secretly loved it. But um it was fun. It was a fun night out. I enjoyed the concert. Um it kind of felt like you were there, even though it was on the screen. She did like forty seven songs, I think, in like two hours and forty five minutes. Yeah, it was like she's so incredible. Like she's such a good performer. Like just everything from like her voice to her like dancing her like production on stage it was all just like super cool to like kind of watch on her face yeah um i will say though it was very sweet and fun just watching my daughter and her girlfriend just like belt out the songs and scream and sing and um we did have kind of a lame group no offense if you're all there but like, we walked in and everybody was, like, sitting in our seats with blankets. And I'm like, what? I was expecting to be on my feet and arms up and, like, singing and dancing, like, at the concert. Like, I've seen on other TikToks. Yeah. And ours were, like, 10 and under were in the front row dancing and singing. Other than that, everybody was just, like, some people were singing, but our group was definitely the loud group. Yeah, for sure. Everybody was sitting, like they were dancing in their seats, kind of, like more so swaying, not dancing, I guess. But yeah, like I saw the same things you did, like on TikTok of people, it looked like they were like acting like they were at the concert right there. But I don't know. And then I felt weird because like, I didn't want to block the people behind us because they weren't standing and I didn't know if I'd be blocking it. So that's why I didn't stand. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, do we all, I wanted to be like, do you guys all want to stand up or like, (laughs) is it just me? But we still had fun. My daughter loved it, and that was the whole point of it. So I couldn't take her to the real concert because, well, everybody knows what happened there. Yeah. So this was the next best thing. It was good. It was a good, uh, it was a really good show. And honestly, like, it did kind of feel like you were at the concert, like, sitting front row. You got to see literally everything. So I I enjoyed it. It was a great uh, Friday the 13th spent. <laughs> Wednesday night, um... My daughter's boyfriend is coming over, and we're going to do a horror movie night with popcorn and all kinds of stuff, so I'll make up for my missed uh, horror movie night. She'll get back on it. You Back in the Halloween uh, horror spirit. But, yeah, um, today, welcome back for another true crime story. Um, I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it. We'll shout out Dax, because I realized... We didn't shout him out last week. That I'm so sorry about that. It's okay. It happens. But yeah, we'll we'll make up for it. Shout out to him, Monica, the whole group. Um, and yeah, I guess just sit back and enjoy the story, guys. I do want to say before you start your story, 
I kind of read some of the cliff notes. I didn't read the whole thing because, again, Crystal put this one together. But I'm seeing, like, the babysitter, babysitter killer. I already cracked the code. I know what you're doing. I've seen this before. Guy goes out at night and starts stalking and killing babysitters. They have, like, a 10-series movies on him. What is this thinking? Michael Meyer? Is this Halloween? Guys, we don't even have to continue the episode because Lo cracked the case. We don't right. even have to continue. Like, Stay creepy. Stay creepy, guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next week. You know what I mean, you already know what's happening now. <laughs> no, it does. I could see how you would get that vibe from it, for sure. Um, I was kind of confused when I was first like researching it because I was like, is he the babysitter and he's killing people? Is he killing babysitters? Like, this was before I, like, fully researched it. I was just kind of, like, getting a brief thing. I was just reading the name. But that's not the case. I don't really, I don't know. So this guy, who we do not know, he is called the babysitter. And that's his nickname. He also is known as the Oakland County Child Killer. So people know him by both names. Um, I guess it just depends on whichever one you want to call him. But yeah, he he is an unidentified serial killer and rapist responsible for the murders of at least four children right here in Oakland County, Michigan. All right, well, give us the deets, girl. Give us the yep. deets. Um, so we got a little local story going on. It's it's pretty sad. Um, I do kind of want to like give a disclaimer of some of the details. I know we don't always give disclaimers before every episode because, like, you know, we're true crime. You kind of know what you're getting into. But, you know, some some details might be more triggering for people than others. So just kind of be aware um, when you're listening. If you feel uncomfortable you can turn it off we totally understand so just this short disclaimer there so these murders they happened between 1976 and 1977 so quite a short period of time as far as you know i feel like serial killers go i feel like usually serial killers are like spread out along like a long time period of years um but this kind of happened you know just in a short blip so kind of how it would happen the victims they were held captive before being killed and this is an unsolved murder now forensic dna testing that the police have done over the years they kind of got it down to like two suspects. Now one of the suspects has since died. So that for sure puts a big, you know, pin in the case. Kind of creates even more issues when trying to solve it. Um, and the other suspect that they kind of narrowed it down to is serving life in prison currently for other offenses against children. Kind of, you know, raises a red flag there. Like, maybe it is him if he's doing other crimes against kids, too. But we'll get into that. We're going to go through, like, all the suspects that they had. Kind of, like, go through who they were and why they were kind of on this list of suspects. And a DNA profile of the main perpetrator was created from samples that were taken um, from some of the victim's bodies. But it doesn't match the DNA of anyone named in connection with the case. So ultimately, this guy is just, or I should say, or woman, but guy or girl, is unknown. They don't realistically know who did these crimes, sadly. So kind of just a brief case history on the children that were affected um, and what went down. We're going to go kind of um, through each of them and what happened in each situation. So the first one happened on February 15th, 1976. A 12-year-old boy named Mark Stebbins, 
He was seen leaving American Legion Hall and he told his mom that he was just gonna go home to watch TV. But that didn't happen. He disappeared and then nobody knew where he was, but then he turned up dead on February 19th. So just four days later, they found his body. Um, and his body was neatly laid out in a snowbank in the parking lot of an office building. They did ultimately find that Mark had been sexually assaulted with an object and then he was strangled to death. Also, there were two cuts inflicted to kind of the left rear area of his head and there were rope marks present on both of his wrists and ankles, which kind of meant that he obviously was probably tied up while he was captured with this person. He was fully clothed when he was found and he was wearing the same exact outfit that he was wearing the day that he went missing. Now the next victim was another 12 year old, um, but this time it was a girl, 12 year old Jill Robinson. She had packed her backpack and decided to run away from home after having an argument with her mom um, over dinner preparations on December 22nd. And you know, when you're 12 and you're like, I'm gonna run away from home because you have a dramatic fight with your parents and it was the 70s. So I just, not saying that, it was just, you know, kids would go outside and leave the house more often than like nowadays where parents are more in high alert, like, no, you have to be here all, at all times. You know what I mean? Well, these days, they got lights of a 60 on your ass. We're going to come get you. Yeah, exactly. You got trackers on the phone, but they definitely didn't have that back then. So she, you know, her mom probably just thought, like, she's just being dramatic. I'll let her blow off the steam as she's saying she's running away. But sadly, that wasn't the case on how it ended. So the next day... Her bicycle was found behind a hobby store. And then four days later, on December 26th, her body was discovered along the side of Interstate 75 near Big Beaver Road. Ooh, that's by your own neck of the woods. Right? Yep. Right around there. So half of her face had been blown off by a 12-gauge shotgun while lying face up in the position that she was found in. How angry do you gotta be? For I, for a 12 year old innocent kid, right? Like this person has problems. Now, Jill, she was fully clothed also, just like Mark was, and she was still wearing her backpack. Again, her body was neatly laid out in the snow. Um, and she had been placed within sight of a police station. When I heard that, I was kind of like, did he like want that? Like, was it like a taunting thing? You know, like he wanted them to be like, find her. Like she was his prize or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you be so obvious as to like openly lay her in front of a police station? It's just, it makes me kind of wonder like mentally where this, uh, where this criminal was at, you know? Well, even the other one, I said he was, uh, like, on top of a snowbank, mm -hmm. flat, just laying there. So it doesn't seem like he's trying to cover up or hide. So I feel like a little bit of his seduction of the crime is testing the police, trying to cat and mouse, like, how much can I get away with? How long till I find... Taunting them. Yeah. And it's almost like... You know how some um, serial killers in the past, they were like fixated on like wanting to be famous from it without obviously being caught. They didn't want to get caught, but they like want, they liked like the fame aspect of it. So I'm wondering if that was the case here too. Like, look what I did. Talk about it. I want people to see it, you know, like some kind of weird twisted thing that they want to accomplish. Oh, I'm sure that's a big part of it. Because in the 70s, you're also talking like, that's like what the Dahmer, Bundy, mm -hmm. like all that era is starting to... Yeah, that's when people are really kind of... That's really, I feel like... I could be wrong, but when a lot of the true crime 
not I hate to say fan base, but you know, like when people's interests really started to get extremely like peaked by it. I mean, I look today where it's like everywhere. Right. Everybody's here for the hype. But definitely no. has grown over the years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, she was laid out inside of a police station and then a few days later on January 2nd of 1977 another girl named Christine Milech she was 10 years old she was last seen purchasing a magazine at a 7-Eleven store her mother reported her as a missing person just three hours later And then fast forward to January 21st, so kind of a little bit more time passed before she was found um, in comparison to the past two cases. Her fully clothed body was discovered by a mail carrier on the side of a rural road in Franklin Village. She, again, was placed within view of nearby homes in the snow. Her eyes were closed and her arms folded across her chest. An autopsy that she had revealed that Christine had been fatally smothered less than 24 hours before she was found. So it is kind of interesting that he used different methods to kill each of them so far. But the way that he left them was all very similar. Like, just, like, laid out. But he, like, was using different ways to, like, murder these kids. Which you even kind of wonder with serial killers, like... You know how, like, people, like, leave trinkets or, you know, if you watch, like, a lot of, like, the Criminal Minds type things, you'll see a lot of stories where they're like, oh, if we know it was this guy because he did the same thing here, here. It's like, dude, like, if you get caught for one, you're going down for all of them when you leave your trademark. Yeah. It's like a, like a, <laughs> a pattern, like, link that you just can't. But their brains probably like, yeah, I know, I know, that's what I'm doing it. I'm going to get famous off this. It's like like their goal. Their sick goal that they have going on. Now, the fourth child victim was an 11-year-old boy named Timothy King. And after borrowing money from his older sister so that he could buy candy at a nearby drugstore, Timothy left his home with his skateboard on March 16th. He left the store by its, like, rear entrance. And in that entrance, it opened up to, like, a parking lot shared with a supermarket. And in that parking lot, he vanished. There was like a widespread search for Timothy and kind of like it hit, you know, TV stations. It got all over the place. They had his father on the news, you know, begging for his son to be released. Like, please bring him home. Um, And even in a printed letter to Detroit News, Timothy's mother wrote that she had hoped he would come back home so she could serve him his favorite meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Which is so sad because I'm sure, I'm sure all of the parents of all of these children were completely panicked and just wanting their kids to come home. But I'm thinking maybe with Timothy's case, since he was the fourth one, they probably heard about these spurts of like missing children who end up dead because it was all happening right around here at the same time you know and then they're probably thinking please don't let him be one of these kids you know so they're like on the news begging for him to come home and it's just really really sad but on march 22nd two teenagers noticed his body in a shallow ditch so this was a little bit different from the first three kind of he was a little bit more hidden His skateboard was next to him, and his clothing was, like, neatly pressed and washed. Timothy, he had been sexually assaulted with an object and suffocated to death. Now, that manner of death was exactly the same as the first case, um, Mark, how he had died as well. And the autopsy revealed that Timothy 
was murdered six hours before he was found. And kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this, but they, you know, while examining his body, they did also find that he had been fed KFC prior to his death, which is like, you know, like you don't know how to feel about that because like his mom was on the news saying, please let him come home so I can give him his favorite meal KFC. And yet this killer did give him his favorite meal KFC, but he still killed him. So I'm like, how do I feel about that? I mean, either way, it's like horribly disgusting that this child died and how he died and that he was being held captive. But like, why? Like, I just can't get inside this like killer's brain. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he's like, I will give you your one final meal. Mm-hmm. Like, was it out of, like, I don't want to say niceness, because obviously this is a horrible human being, but, like, was it, like, a good intention thing to do, or was it almost, like, a torturous... Probably, like, I feel like I'm a control, like, a, I don't want to say, like, a god thing. Right. But, like, he probably had some kind of... He felt powerful, maybe. Yeah, like yeah. a god complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you said that right. Yeah, super, I don't know, like, it made me, like, really kind of uncomfortable when I read that, because I'm just like, oh, I just don't know, like, and I can't even imagine how his mom felt, like, hearing that, too. Obviously, the entire thing, she felt horrible, but, like, just even that detail is, like, kind of twisted, because this guy obviously saw her on the news and still decided to do that to her son. So... The M.O. of the babysitter slash the Oakland County child killer, it it mainly consisted of abducting children while they were on their way to specific locations before holding them captive for between 4 to 19 days. Now, he would sexually assault the boys only. So he killed two boys and two girls, and he only sexually assaulted the boys. And he did murder them in various ways. Um, you know, he he had shot and he shot one with a shotgun, um, and then he strangled some. He smothered them, so he, he had different um, ways of killing them. And then once the children were dead, the killer would then you know place their bodies in various locations in Oakland County, in the view of the public, like we said. So, obviously, police were frantic at this point, trying to figure out who this is because they they don't want more children to keep coming up missing and then found dead. Um, so, they're, like, working like crazy to figure out who this is. Now, they did have some main suspects and persons of interest that they kind of narrowed it down to. And we're kind of going to go through these um, each person by person. So the first one was Alan. Now, sorry, it's kind of remind me of that um, TikTok. Uh, the lady that did the like pumpkin exercise. She's like, "This is Alan." Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that your your mind went immediately to that. I know what you're talking well, about. Well, this is because of what you said it. His name was Alan. Where she's like. So squat for the ghost, kick the what I don't know even the words. Yeah, like kick him in the crotch. Kick him in the crotch, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's not that it's just because of the way you said his name was Alan. Alan. <laughs> this is Alan. <laughs> I feel like most people probably know what you're talking about because that one's super viral. If you guys don't know, look it up. Um, but yeah, so this guy Alan, their first kind of like suspect that they had on their list. Um, in the following weeks after the death of Timothy King, Dr. Bruce Danto, a Detroit psychiatrist who was working with the task force on this case at the time, he received a poorly spelled and guilt-ridden letter from an anonymous writer only referred to as Alan. Now, this person claimed to be a sadomasochist slave to his roommate, named Frank, who is believed to be the Oakland County child killer. Now, 
this Allen guy, he wrote a pleading, remorseful, and fearful letter about how he was losing his sanity, endangered, and developed suicidal thoughts, convincing Danto that the letter was genuine. According to Allen, he had accompanied Frank on many road trips seeking out boys, but claimed that he wasn't present during the abduction excuse me, the abductions for the boys that Frank murdered. He also confirmed that Frank drove an AMC Gremlin, but he got rid of it in Ohio and it was never seen again. Now, this Allen guy also stated in the letter that Frank was traumatized from the experience of killing children during the Vietnam War, in which he and Allen both had served and he was seeking some type of revenge against more affluent citizens, including the residents of the Birmingham area. He also wrote that Frank wanted to see rich people suffer for sending forces to Vietnam and getting nothing in return. If that was the case, like, why are you killing innocent kids? Like, if you're mad about, like, the whole system. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the kid's fault. So to me, that makes no sense. Now, this Allen guy also had instructed Dr. Danto to respond to the letter by printing code words on it, such as, Weather Bureau says tree to blossom in three weeks. Um, That was published in one of the Sunday Free Press editions. And soon after, Dr. Danto received a phone call from this Allen guy, supposedly, in which he offered to provide photographic evidence in exchange for a letter from William Milliken, the governor of Michigan at the time, which I guess guaranteed him immunity from being prosecuted. So he was trying to make some sort of deal, being like, I'll give you this proof if you can like kind of make sure that I'm going to be like safe and not get prosecuted for anything. So... Dr. Danto arranged the meeting at a bar, um, which was known as the Pony Cart Bar, which was near Detroit's Palmer Woods neighborhood. However, you know, this Allen guy, he never showed up at the venue and then he was never seen again. So that was kind of like a dead end for them because they didn't know who this guy was. They didn't know where he lived, where he was from, what his phone number was. There was literally no trace to who he was at all. And then he just completely stopped communicating with him after he kind of dropped all this like confession type stuff saying like I'll meet up with you I'll do a deal like I have all this information but then he just drops off the face of the earth maybe he's with the car somewhere that's true like I'm I'm like (laughs) you never know maybe he was in the car he was in the car when the car disappeared I'm thinking like if this is true maybe Frank the guy who he said supposedly was the one doing this got wind of him talking with the police and got rid of Alan. That could be, you know, the case. Otherwise, I'm just like, I never understand when people come forward with false confessions. You know what? I I just will never, I'll never understand it. Alan put a wrench in the plan. Wow, you're so good. You're on a roll. (laughs) Lowe's on a roll tonight. (laughs) That was good. That was really good. Oh god. She's got she's got the jokes, people. She's got the jokes. (laughs) Oh, I even did a little clink on my wine glass for you. But he sure did. (laughs) He sure did. But yeah, that was the that was the end of Alan on their suspect list. So kind of moving on to one of their next persons of interest suspects that they had a theory on. It was um, Archibald Edward Sloan, who was born in 1941. Now, Archibald was a pedophile who had been victimizing young boys in his neighborhood at the time of the killings. Um, And he became a suspect in the Oakland County child killer case when there were hair samples discovered in his 1966 Pontiac Boneville and it matched the hair that was found on the bodies of Timothy King and Mark Stebbins. 
to me, that's like, feels like pretty clear evidence, does it not? Like his hair was on their bodies and he was a pedophile and they, those were the two that were sexually assaulted. I'm like, ding, 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 hello. Let's close the case, people. But um, unfortunately, the hair samples didn't match any of the other victims. And it was believed that Sloan often lent his car to his friends who also happened to be pedophiles just like him. So police kind of had a little bit of a dead end because although his hair was on them, which I feel like is like pretty big, if he did loan his car to another one of his pedophile friends, it could have just like gotten on the kids when they captured I them. That's a very big stretch. It could be stretched. Like, I'm like, and I don't like that they're like, well, yeah, but his hair wasn't found on the other two victims. It's like, okay, but it was found on these two, so let's get him for these two. So they either worked together. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. More than one. So it's like, you know, pedophiles made up at this point, at this time. Like, it's a... Right, like they made it a, a plan or like a thing. I don't know, but that really... That really grind my gears a little bit because you know I feel like that's pretty clear evidence yeah I feel like they needed to push on that a little harder yeah. maybe like it's almost like they get to the tip and like no nope, nope too close we'll, we'll just go back like, right you know, no keep going yep like you're you're pretty close there I mean you found his hair on them which is a pretty big deal I don't I don't know, I don't know, that that one kind of, like, bothers me. So, the next one might be a name that sounds a little bit familiar to all you true crime peeps out there. Um, John Wayne Gacy. Ooh, the scariest clown around. Yep, that is him. You know, he was in their sights of possibly being uh, the suspect in these in these murders so as the child killings took place in michigan the authorities they did consider the possibility that the infamous killer clown john wayne gacy was the oakland child killer so according to a witness in the 1977 abduction of timothy king there were two men with king during the time of his abduction the first suspect was described as a young man in his late 20s, while the other suspect bared a strong resemblance to Gacy himself. It was allegedly believed that Gacy had also been in Michigan around that time during these murders. However, flash forward to 2013, several DNA tests were conducted and they confirmed that John Wayne Gacy was definitely not the Oakland County child killer because obviously they had his DNA in systems at this point. Yeah, for him, though, didn't he keep him, like, more in his basement, though, hostage? Yeah, like, I feel like this was a very big stretch. Just And I feel like they only kind of ran with this because he was a well-known criminal. And he only took boys. I yeah. Believe. And I don't know if they thought, like, maybe because only the boys were sexually assaulted, but, like, then why would he even take the girls? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. This one doesn't feel the same. No, this one seems kind of just like... Throwing shit at the wall and seeing That's what I'm saying, like a big stretch. I, The first one, the first one and the second one, I'm like, okay, I can get on board with these. This one is just like, all right, they're, they have no other thing to go off of, so they're going to pick John Wayne Gacy. Um, the next one was Theodore Lamborghini. He was also born in 1941, and police in Parma Heights, Ohio, they had arrested Theodore. He was a retired auto worker who was believed to be involved in a child pornography ring in the 1970s. Gross. I don't even like saying that. But on March 27th, 2007, investigators told the TV news station in Detroit that Lamborghini was considered as the top suspect in the case. Now, Lamborghini, he pleaded guilty to 15 sex-related counts that involved young boys. Rather than accepting a plea deal, which would have required him to take a polygraph test on the Oakland County child killings. 
which is spishy, spishy, fishy, fishy, as Lowe says. For sure. Like, big time. He also refused an offer of a reduced sentence in exchange for the polygraph test on this case. Like, that's a big red flag. Like, why would you get, you know, deny all of this these deals they're giving you just to not take a polygraph test? Which I get. Those aren't super reliable. Yeah, a lot of people these days anyway say, if you're guilty, don't take them. If you're innocent, don't take them. Yeah, because they're not super accurate. But I feel like back then people didn't know that. So, like, if he really thought that it would have gotten him lying, then maybe he was the one involved in these killings. We didn't have Heather Ashley's and Mm -hmm. Ashley Flowers. No, it was a different time. (laughs) So... In October of 2007, the family of Mark Stebbins, um, the second victim, or excuse me, the first victim, they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Lamborghini and they sought $25,000 in damages. Now, this lawsuit that, that they had, it alleges that Lamborghini, who lived in the Detroit metro area back in the 70s, abducted Mark and held him captive in a Royal Oak house for four days in February of 1976 before smothering him to death during a sexual assault against him. However, Lamborghini, he had never been formally linked or charged within the death of Mark Stebbins. And the Stebbins family attorney, David Binkley, he sought compensation, which included funeral costs for Mark's brother, Michael, but stressed that the money was secondary. Um, so that really didn't go anywhere because, again, they couldn't really officially link him to the case. He was just another one of those, like, this seems suspicious. This seems like it could be linked, but we don't have anything, like, like any hard evidence to actually link it. Now, the next one was Chris Bush. He was born in 1951, and he did pass away in 1978. Um, So eventually, the case sparked new interest when the father and uncle of the victim, Timothy King, tried to get the Michigan State Police to release information about this guy, Chris Bush, who... He was the son of Harold Lee Bush, which was a high-level executive for the General Motors Auto Company. Chris had been in police custody before Timothy's abduction for I can't even say that word suspected involvement in child pornography. In November of 1978, it was alleged that Chris had committed suicide. However, the strange thing was that no gunshot residue was found on his corpse, nor was there a sign of any blood spatter either. So, also, four shell casings, they were found in his room. He also appeared to be wrapped neatly under the sheets. He was found with one bullet hole right between the eyes. So I'm like, that doesn't sound like a suicide to me. If there is no blood splatter, he's neatly wrapped under the blankets. And like, there was no residue from the gunshot. Like, I'm just like, that seems like he was shot somewhere else and someone put him there. Maybe he rolled himself up like a mummy and suffocated himself. I mean... Maybe, but he had a gunshot <laughs> between his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Unless that was, you know, from a different time. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it was investigated by the same people that don't think the hair matches is good enough. That's true. <laughs> but a drawing depicted a child screaming in agony was found in Chris's house. Um... It had an eerie resemblance to Mark Stebbins, one of the victims, which is kind of weird. But again, they couldn't really fully link it just because of that. And after Chris allegedly committed suicide, there was no confirmed activity from the Oakland child killer. So 
they were like, maybe it was him because now he's dead and now these crimes have stopped. But that's, again, it could be a stretch, not really legit concrete evidence. Um, And since then, the Michigan State Police, they released 3,400 pages of investigative records to Barry King, who's Timothy's father. Which, good, he should get that information about his son's case and everything, but it didn't really lead to a conviction, obviously. So, again, the four victims that were confirmed and all known, they were killed in Oakland County and between the year... 1976 and 1977 and really it wasn't even a full year it was kind of just like a short time span before the new year kind of rolled around so it was february 15th mark stebbins was 12 december 22nd the 12 year old jill robbins january 2nd christine millich and march 16th timothy king but there were also some possible victims um that they thought maybe could be included within under the umbrella of who they thought the oakland county child killer might have killed but they weren't for sure about it so in 1976 so same year that a lot of the other ones took place on january 15th a 16 year old named cynthia cadu she was abducted and bludgeoned. Her body was found the following day. And on August 7th, a 14-year-old named Jane Allen, she was also abducted and murdered by carbon monoxide poisoning, and her body was found four days later. Now, kind of like a side note, the Oakland County child killer was initially suspected of murdering 14-year-old Sheila Strock, who she was raped and shot. Now, it was later revealed that a man named Oliver Rhodes Andrews was actually the one responsible for killing her, so it wasn't um, the Oakland County child killer that was responsible for her death, and he was convicted for her murder and he's currently serving a life uh, prison sentence so kind of a little bit going into the investigation um after the discovery of malik's body authorities noticed a lot of similarities shared by her case and those of stebbins and robinson Reports were released warning the public that a serial killer was possibly operating in the Oakland County area, so stay on alert. And the Michigan State Police, they led a group of law enforcement officials from 13 communities in the formation of a task force just solely devoted to this investigation of the killings of the three children at that time before the fourth was ultimately killed. And then after King disappeared, a woman told authorities that she had seen a boy with a skateboard, just like Timothy, talking to a man in the parking lot of the pharmacy that he visited on that March 16th, 1977 day. A composite drawing of the suspect kidnapper and his blue AMC gremlin was released and authorities questioned literally every gremlin owner in Oakland County. Investigators created a profile based on witnesses' descriptions of the man who was seen talking to Timothy, and that description came out as a white male aged between 25 and 35 with a dark complexion, shaggy hair, and sideburns, um, who had a job that gave him freedom of movement and made him appear trustworthy to children was familiar with the area and could keep children captive for long periods of time without rousing, you know, neighbors' suspicions. So the task force was 
you know, solely set on figuring out what was happening. And they checked more than 18,000 tips, which resulted in about two dozen arrests on unrelated charges and the discovery of a multi-state child pornography ring, which was operating on North Fox Island in Lake Michigan. The task force was unable to make such headway in the Oakland County Child investigation um and it was disbanded in december of 1978 with the they kind of turned the investigation over to the state police at that point so i guess a positive thing that came out of the investigation was that they found this whole child pornography ring that was going on and they made other arrests because this came to light while investigating this one but sadly you know Obviously, they didn't figure out who this guy was. Well, at least they didn't leave him empty-handed. Right, yeah, they got something out of it. Yeah, not what we were hoping for, but if we can stop that as well. Right, That's that's just bonus points, you know, a positive, at least some positive outcome that came out of it. Um, so... You know, DNA testing has kind of, like, come a little bit further throughout the years than it was in the 70s. Um, And they would just do new DNA testing of new suspects. Um, And they kind of, like, looked at all their old evidence that they had. But upon researching the case records, Timothy's family, who Timothy King's family was... And I'm not saying the other families weren't because I don't know. But I know from what I read, Timothy's family was very heavily involved with, like, the investigation. And, like, let's figure this out. Like, we need to, like... They were not bench sitters. They were, like, we're going to keep moving until we figure it out. Exactly. They were not taking the back seat on this. Right. They were not going to sit down until they got some answers. Um, They even produced a documentary that was entitled Decades of Deceit which that condemns the police and prosecutors for, you know, not doing the best job investigating. And they said that they were uncooperative. They didn't have great communication. Um, And in particular, they disregarded leads the family discovered in 2006, which is crazy. I mean, it's not that shocking when you hear about, like, when they were going through some of the people that they were investigating like things that they kind of looked over so the king family were not happy about this um the funds generated from the sale of the documentary that they made were donated to the tim king fund um, which was designated to help abuse children and support activities for birmingham children so again a small positive outcome but not kind of um big picture of what everybody was looking big for win, but we're getting little little glimpses here and there of positive things coming out of it but yes they even did um dna tests of hair um in 2012 dna tests conducted showed that hair found on the seat of sloan's car which we were talking about earlier and on the bodies of stebbins and king were a match and came from the same man. The hair DNA does not match Sloan, but implicates someone he knew or lent his car to. So after, you know, years of like DNA testing coming further along, they could confirm that it wasn't him, but it was probably somebody who he lent his car to, they're thinking. But if he had like a whole group of like, pedophile friends how are they gonna link it because he's not gonna give it up he's not gonna be like oh yeah these are all my friends you can go ask them even he might not even know if he just like lent out his car all the time but but you'd still think you could narrow down who you left your car to right like look into his past like look into people he hangs out with like even if it was like yeah i lent my car to these four different guys okay well then we know one of these four different guys could be one of them yeah like yeah. make a list here's pen here's paper don't freaking move until you have everybody you lent your car to on this paper but i feel like that would mean 
he would have to be a good person to do that. And he's not. Like, he's out here doing the same shit. Right. Not saying that he murdered any children, but he's out here doing pedophile gross stuff. So he's not a good person either. Well, you think it'd be more motive to put the focus on men then. Right, and protect himself. But who knows? Stupid. So... Some later developments in 2013, an anonymous informant reporting um, a blue AMC gremlin was buried in a farm field in Grand Blank. So police were investigating the gremlin for ties to the crime um, as Timothy King was last seen in a blue gremlin. Now, in 2005, an unidentified man who would later emerge to become a common figure in the case and has been referred to by the alias of Jeff, was reminded of a relationship he had in 1977 with an acquaintance. In an interview given to Oakland County investigators in 2010, Jeff informed them of atypical observations and actions while driving and conversing with the acquaintance um, such as taking him to buildings where satanic rituals were allegedly performed the acquaintance navigated through not well-known routes associated with the case also um, and he also spoke of details written in you know alan the first guy who wrote the letter and Jeff requested information about the Allen letter to help confirm his suspicions, but he was denied, so he couldn't look at the letter. Which, I don't get why. If he's trying to help the case, like, why not give this guy, just give him the letter? Now, in 2010, Jeff gave a recorded interview to Oakland County investigators and prosecutor Jessica Cooper to present evidence pertaining to the investigation. Jeff claimed to have tried to approach Cooper with his findings and, like, convince her to place the case under jurisdiction of the Department of Justice, but it was already involved through the FBI and through resources, so Cooper dismissed his suggestion and there was no new evidences presented. Um, he described cooper in the interview as a rambling statement outlining a theory that the oakland county child killer abductions and murders were related to pagan holidays the lunar calendar and wiccan rituals so he was kind of taking it to a whole new level being like oh this is something satanic this is wiccan this is you know they're doing rituals instead of just being like it's probably just a serial killer on the loose. stretching. Yeah, just the... I feel like that happens in a lot of cases when they're just running out of anything. They just st stretch things so far. So, Jeff proceeded to, you know, talk with Deborah Jarvis, who was the mother of the victim, Christine, and investigative journalists Bill Proctor and Heather Catello also talked with Jeff in 2010, and he claimed that he was among a team of dozen investigators involved with the case and could identify the perpetrator of the crimes, but refused to indicate which law enforcement division that he worked for. So it's like, why would you not tell them if you're in a law position? Why would you be like, well, I can't tell you which one. That makes me be like, you're not actually in one. Did you get your badge from Five Below? That's, like? what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and Jeff claimed to have invested, excuse me, have invested 10,000 hours into this investigation over several years but was reluctant to release his result as he doubted the competence of Wayne and Oakland County investigators. If you doubt, doubt their competence, why not present your own investigations that you've spent 10,000 hours on? You know, like, why just be like, well, I just thought they were stupid, so I didn't even try. Like, that makes no sense. Now, in a press release email, Jeff 
indicated possible meddling by Cooper and other reasons as to why he had not made his investigation public. Um, according to an attorney representing Jarvis, Paul Hughes, Jeff's investigation discovered the murderer. However, according to Hughes, Jeff refused to identify the culprit unless the authorities divulged crucial information which Jeff requested during the initial interviews in 2010. Jeff wanted to positively confirm the identity of his suspect using the police evidence before proceeding further, which I kind of get. I guess because maybe he wanted all the concrete evidence to bring everything together because if they don't have enough then a lot of times they just dismiss it but also think about all these families who lost their kids who just like want to know the answers and you're saying you have the answer but you're not going to tell them until they help you out it's kind of torturing the survived loved ones yeah and at that point it's like it's just a pride thing that he's doing then. It's not like he actually genuinely is wanting to help these families get some type of closure. So two years later, in 2012, Jeff presented his findings <clears throat> to a select group of Detroit journalists on Hughes' cell phone to preserve his anonymous status. He insisted that his phone interview with Hughes would not be recorded. He theorized that the killers were conducting Wiccan human sacrifice rituals coinciding with pagan celebrations of the lunar calendar. And Jeff says there was a total of approximately 11 to 16 victims, significantly more than the four that were officially confirmed. He claimed his team found a number of similarities among the cases and were highly unlikely to be purely coincidental. Now, based on this information, Hughes attempted a lawsuit against the Oakland County authorities for $100 million, citing mishandling of the investigation and demanding Cooper's resignation. The lawsuit allegedly cover up conspiracy and obstruction, and Hughes' website solicited donations and offered a copy of Jeff's report for a donation of $1,500. The families of the victims, as well as Cooper, claimed that Hughes and Jeff were attempting to profit on their distress. And this entire case was dismissed in March of that year for just complete lack of evidence. And that's the whole, like, right there when their families say that they're just attempting to profit on their distress. Like, why are you paying, wanting people to pay money? Like, it's just sick at that point. Like, they're just so taking the human out of it, you know? Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Kind of sad that they don't have anything solved. And they have no answers. And I don't know at this point if they ever will. It's kind of hard to say when that was in the 70s. You know, if if it was linked, it's like the person might be dead at this point. But at least they would know. At least they would know. They for would sure. know who it was. You know, they would know the person. Okay, he's dead. Clearly, he can't hurt anybody else. Even though if they seen him now, he'd be in his 80s. You right. Know? Um, well, I guess maybe not that old. I guess it just well, depends. Well, I guess it depends how old he was in the 70s. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think still, you know, was it our creepy next-door neighbor? Was it the guy at the supermarket that bagged our groceries every day? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They would at least know who it was. Right. Just to give the family's closure, too. Um, and I feel like the last few cases we reported... Or talked about, maybe not all of them, but how they have, like, the DNA now. You put it in and it almost puts, like, a face mm-hmm. of who it is. Like, the DNA is coming so much more farther computer-wise that what's to say that they can't start going back to cold cases and putting evidence in there and, you know, 
figuring stuff out. Yeah, and the technology is just going to keep getting more and more advanced. So if they keep trying, you know, the probability of them figuring out who did this has a higher chance, you know, with the new technology that they're creating. So here's hoping that one day we'll figure out who this Oakland child county killer is, a.k.a. the babysitter. A.K.A. not Michael Myers. Yeah, A.K.A. not Michael Myers. Different guy. He wasn't even as gross. He was just no. emotionless and evil. But at least he went after... He just straight up murdered. Yeah, he just had, like, rage issues. And he didn't hurt kids, because clearly he had the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Side note, also, they made a Criminal Minds episode. Uh, so, season 12... The episode is called Devil's Backbone and the Storm. So while the babysitter was never directly mentioned or referenced on the show, so they never said, like, this is based off of the Oakland Child County Killer, um, the case did appear to have been inspired. So both were serial killers who targeted minors of both genders, took care of them at a secondary location for days, killed them with a gunshot to the head, um, and were given nicknames for their crimes. So, yeah, just side note there, they kind of, like, loosely based this off of a couple of episodes that they made for Criminal Minds. But, yeah. And if you don't watch it for that, just watch it for Derek Morgan. That's enough. See, you're more of Derek Morgan. I'm more of Reed. I'm a Reed girl. Oh, Reed was cool too. Yeah, I Derek Morgan is like, I don't know. Reed just does it for me. (laughs) He's just so cute and sweet and smart and I don't know. He reminds me of Shaggy from Scooby Doo, and for some reason, I like that. (laughs) Okay, the cartoon or the movie? (laughs) Both. Matthew Lillard, I guess I could just say. Oh, who doesn't love a Matthew Lillard? Yeah. Oh my God, he like makes my funny bone. He'll he'll forever have a piece of my heart. Except he'd be looking a little different these days. Although, well, because he's aging. Although, Matthew Lillard, ding, 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 without a paddle, with Dax Shepard shouting out. Double time. This episode, because we didn't even do it last time, so we did it twice. Just saying. Just just, just saying. Just to make up for it. <laughs> but yeah, that concludes the information about the babysitter. Um, sad story. I hate it when kids are the one. I mean, it's I hate it when anybody's being like tortured and killed, obviously. But it's just so sad when it's little innocent kids who are doing nothing i know those are the hard ones to yeah to get through. it's like a sick twisted level to it hopefully one day computers and electronics and just the way the world will work like maybe it'll be even just too hard to even commit any kind of crime because you're just gonna immediately like get caught and then people will just stop doing it like that would be beautiful i mean that's never gonna happen the world's gonna turn to shit before that but i love the optimism though i'm just saying like <laughs> but i mean even if you think about it like even from when i was 16 till now my kids don't have a snowball hell and chance at throwing a house party from out of town they don't know how to sneak out and sneak back in through their bedroom windows not that i've ever done that but i'm just saying wink wink um they don't, they can't tiptoe into the back door and down the basement and pretend you've been sitting there for half an hour, even though you're like a half an hour past curfew. <clears throat> Again, never did that. Um, She's just heard of other people doing it. <laughs> just speaking for a friend. Okay? Right, yeah. Not um, me. <laughs> but no, like my kids like sneeze hard enough and my looks is like, bless you. <laughs> okay, it really doesn't. But you know what I'm saying, like. There's rings all around everybody's houses now. Like, you'd think you'd get to the point where it's so hard to commit a crime because everything is so updated with cameras and... Big Brother is watching. So... Yeah, I feel like it's definitely getting harder to get away with it, which is good. 
but I also think it's it's like weird because it's harder to get away with because like you said there's so much evidence everywhere but also people are getting more sadistic more and smart about it yeah and it's just like oh there's like like yes it's getting better as far as catching people but it's, I feel like it's getting worse crime wise catfishing Ugh, it's just crazy out there posing as you know a 13 year old boy wanting to be a 13 year old girl and it's really a 60 year old skeezer yep disgusting yeah so be safe out there guys be smart with your technology and just be smart with your surroundings because you never know. There's a lot of weirdos out there. But yeah, um, I guess we'll leave you on that note. That, that uplifting note. <laughs> um, so thank you guys so much for sticking around, listening to this episode. And we will be back again next week with another story for you. And if you're from Oxford, this Friday night we'll be walking around Oxford for Witches' Night Out. No, this comes out after that. So I know, but oh. we'll be there Friday. Yeah, but then that already would have happened. So maybe you saw us there. Oh, yeah. I just saying. <laughs> I'm an idiot. No, you're not. That glass of wine went down fast. It was, the, so. it was the apple pie wine. <laughs> so maybe we saw you guys there. Yes. Um... So, yeah, <laughs> we, we had a great time at Witches Night Out on Friday. It was such a blast. We'll, we'll talk more about it in a few days. Yeah, you'll hear more details about it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, we got to go. <laughs> Stay creepy. Bye. Bye. Bye.